Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts great comics works and great scholarly minds into conversation with each other. Today we'll be talking about the concept of sexual awakening, or at least dawning sexual consciousness, in Craig Thompson's Blankets and Marco and Jillian Tamaki's This One Summer. Both are critically lauded texts that use graphic narrative to capture the dawning consciousness of either the transcendent concept of love, or the cruelly manipulative concept of hormones run amok. Possibly both, possibly both at the same time. Uh, and as usual today, I am joined to talk about these texts by my two co-hosts. Um, first, Dr. Anna Papard. Hello. And Dr. Michael Hancock. Hello. Uh, so I think we'll go in chronological order here uh, and have Anna give us uh, a rundown of Craig Thompson's Blankets. So Craig Thompson's Blankets, originally published by Top Shelf in 2003, is an autobiographical graphic novel that tells the story of Thompson's childhood in a devout Christian family in rural Wisconsin, along with his first love affair and part of his young adulthood. Since its release, it's been much acclaimed. Time magazine ranked it at number eight in its best comics of the decade. It won multiple Eisner, Harvey, and Ignatz awards, and many of the most celebrated comics creators have sung its praises, including Art Spiegelman, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, and Jules Pfeiffer. In a bit more detail, in nine parts and some 600 pages, it's a it's a it's quite a tome, this book, Blanket centers around Thompson's childhood relationship with his younger brother, Phil, and a later period from Thompson's late adolescence involving a romance with a girl named Raina, whom he meets at Christian camp and later spends two weeks visiting at her home in Michigan. The two-week visit takes up a considerable portion of the comic and is presented as a life-changing experience for Thompson, informing his artistic journey and his eventual rejection of organized religion. We also spend considerable time in Thompson's childhood, in which he's mercilessly bullied at school, abused by a babysitter, and convinces himself to find salvation in religion. He's particularly seduced by the promise of heaven as an escape from his day-to-day -day loneliness and trauma, though he's distressed when he's told that his artistic gifts will have no place in heaven and are of no value to God. At one point, the young Thompson burns all his cartoons in an effort to be more purely devout and strongly considers entering the ministry. Each section is introduced and framed by thematically significant episodes from Thompson's childhood, which suggests the ways these formative experiences echo over time. The title, Blankets, links the Raina section and the childhood sections. In the opening childhood flashback, Craig and Phil fight over the blankets and a bed their parents make them share, leading to Phil being banished for the night to a horrific crawl space they called the cubbyhole. Later, Raina expresses her feelings for Craig by handmaking him a quilt composed of patterns, she says, remind her of him. This quilt becomes visually and symbolically significant in many scenes in which Craig and Raina sleep together and apart, wrapped in or clutching the quilt, and the quilt ends up being the only piece of Raina Craig keeps after the relationship finally ends. In this comic, blankets represent the give and take of different kinds of personal relationships and celebrate the power of dreams and imagination. Early on, Thompson describes himself as almost addicted to escaping into dreams, where his passion and creativity can finally have free reign. The story concludes with a glimpse of Thompson's early childhood after he moves to New York for art school and rejects Christianity, something he confesses to his brother but did not apparently confess to his parents until the publication of this graphic novel. Thompson credits the success of Blankets to hitting a kind of sweet spot between mainstream and alternative interests. While Blankets definitely can and should be read within the proud tradition of American autobiographical graphic novels, it sets itself apart from that tradition in its pairing of dark confessionalism with optimism and unabashed beauty. 
Despite featuring considerable abuse and drama, Blankets is very tonally different from, say, Chris Ware's Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Kid on Earth, which we discussed on a previous pod. Jimmy Corrigan is almost unrelentingly hopeless and communicates that tonally with a sparse, ultra-precise style that uses the comics grid to trap and isolate its tragic characters. Blankets, in contrast, interrupts the barren coldness of empty, snow-covered landscapes and drafty farmhouses with whimsical beauty and spectacular passion. In Thompson's own words, quote, I didn't want to do anything cynical and nihilistic, which is the standard for a lot of alternative comics, end quote. For all the praise that's been heaved upon it, Blankets has faced some controversy. Much like Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, as well as the other texts we're going to be discussing this one summer, it's faced attempts to ban it from public libraries, largely on the basis of its relatively frank depictions of sex and masturbation. I'd wager these attempts to ban Blankets have more to do with the nature of the sexual content than the fact of the sexual content. Blankets' depiction of sex as beautiful rather than shameful might be its boldest statement and is my personal favorite part of the comic. I'm sure we'll talk about that along with the comic's facility for autobiography and coming-of-age stories in our discussion today. Thank you, Anna. Uh, and Michael, can you walk us through this one summer? So it's been a long term for me during a long year. And wouldn't it just be nice to get away, to just get in the car and drive? There's a comfort in being able to go to the cabin, an escapism that removes you from your routine, yet is still familiar and safe. And likewise, there's a comfort in reading such a narrative as contained in Mariko and Jillian Tamaki's This One Summer. But comfort isn't all the book has to offer. In this coming-of-age story, early teen protagonist Rose Abigail Wallace learns you can't just put your troubles behind you. Some troubles follow wherever you go, and some troubles are already in Owego Beach, just waiting to be found. And I'm not referring here to Estelle's world-famous turkey jerky. But first, let's talk about the book's creators, Canadian cousins Mariko and Jillian Tamaki. Mariko is a comic book writer and recipient of a 2020 Eisner Award for her work on Harley Quinn Breaking Glass, Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, and Archie. As that list may suggest, Mariko has a history with teen starring books, but also a background with superhero comics, including Supergirl, Spider-Man and Venom Double Trouble, and She-Hulk, the last of which you can hear our thoughts on in episode 15 of Three Panel Contrast. Spoilers, we found it mixed. Jillian is primarily an illustrator and also no stranger to the Eisners, having won a 2016 Best Publication for Teens for Super Mad Mutant Magic Academy and a 2015 Eisner Award with Mariko for the book I'm discussing right now. This one summer has won reams of awards of its own, in addition to the aforementioned Eisner, it's garnered an Ignatz, a Prince honor, a Caldecott honor, the Lind Ward Prize for Mariko, and two Governor General Awards for Jillian. It's also reaped some criticism and was the number one most challenged book in 2016 for the American Library Association, for its LGBT characters, drug use, sexually explicit content, and profanity. I'm sure we'll discuss the validity of those challenges at some point, but suffice to say for now, the book doesn't shy away from adult content while still staying firmly anchored in the perspective of its young teen characters. I'll start a slow wrapping up of my intro here with a small confession. When Andrew announced these two books he picked for the episode, I leapt on this one summer, and I was, to be honest, punting. Thompson's Blankets resonates with me and my childhood a bit in ways I'm not entirely comfortable with, and this one summer seemed comparatively safe. My family never had a cabin. I certainly never went through the emotional complexity of a young teen girl. But the themes of this young summer resonate beyond that. 
It's about dumb fights with your friend over something that's pretty much your fault. It's about realizing that someone you admired is kind of an asshole. It's about realizing your parents are just human after all. In short, it's about growing up in a way that rings very true. This one summer may not be the cabin escape I was planning, but it's still a pretty great place to visit. Uh, okay, so maybe not starting at the start, but something that we both mentioned, or we, <laughs> you guys both mentioned, um, would be <laughs> that both of these texts were challenged. Um, I, I think in the case of Blankets, I'm not even remotely surprised by that. In the case of this one summer, I'm shocked to, to hear that it received that kind of reception. What's your take on what earned these texts the ire, let's say, um, of you know institutional and cultural bodies of censorship? I would definitely jump in and say because they're comics um, <laughs> and there's a long history of why that's the case, but also some of the properties of the form relating to that as well. I mean, the presumption that comics are, as the comics code used to say, wholesome, entertaining and educational um, is still very much ingrained in the public consciousness. And I think when you have... I mean, it's very commonplace and, you know, boring for us to be talking about comics are not just for kids and kids are more complicated than we assume kids are. And these are conversations that in, in academia and in people who study young adult fiction and people who read comics, these are all old hat conversations that we're all sick of having. And yet when these things get brought to a broader audience that might not be aware that these things have been going on in comics or even YA in general, um, you can sort of enter those controversies again and again and again, like sort of every five years, it seems like. So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of getting at, you know, the presumption that comics are for children and represent um, certain conservative moralities is, I think, a factor in why comics often get challenged. I mean, I brought up Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, which gets challenged a lot as well. Um, and there's been a number of different comics that have been challenged over the years, just again, sort of, I mean, Saga being banned from um, Apple, if you guys recall that we talked about that a little bit when we talked about Saga on a previous pod as well. So I think that that's part of it. But I mean, I would also suggest that there's something about the nature of comics and cartooning that makes sexuality particularly dangerous and exciting. And I mean, it's that imaginative freedom of cartooning that can, you can have something like blankets, you know, depicting sexuality as this spiritual, passionate life force in this particular way that's so subjective and imaginative and frankly intimate. I mean, think about the specific intimacy of cartooning, right? I mean, that idea of someone drawing a scene of masturbation on the page with the sensual experience of the pencil, the pen, and then you're consuming it in this very intimate space of the privacy, you know, like in your bed like tucked into the covers i mean that's how i read this book right and think about the exchange of intimacy there right like i mean the subjective experience that is being rendered through this particular medium of cartooning and the way that we consume that experience too in this very intimate and subjective kind of very involved way i mean we've talked lots on this pod right about the very particular um participatory nature of comics right i mean going all the way back to when we talked about scott mcleod and our um jimmy corrigan and art spiegelman podcast right and so I think that that participatoriness of comics, that intimacy of comics, the particular facility of comics for representing subjective realities, I think that a lot of people find that very threatening and that they might not know that that's what they're responding to, 
but I think it is what they're responding to. And it's really fascinating because, I mean, again, I think even people who don't like comics or know anything about comics are seeing that power of comics. It's just whether you interpret that power as a good thing or a bad thing says a lot about where you're coming from in terms of what, how you feel about the freedom of especially like young adult imaginations and whether you want them to have that freedom or whether you don't want them to have that freedom. And certainly going all the way back to Wortham and the framers of the comics code, they didn't want children and young adults to have that creative freedom. They didn't want them to be able to read between the lines and be like, what if Batman and Robin were kind of in love with each other? (laughs) And the comics certainly make that available through all the gaps, like between the panels and within the panels. Right. And I think that that's very scary. Like, even now, much as it was to people in the 1950s, that, you know, comics are really representative of the threat of young people having their own culture and their own ideas and their own private spaces of imagination. And I think that the efforts to ban both of these things kind of resonate a lot with those historical conflicts to me. Mm -hmm. What's your take, Michael? Uh, With this one summer in particular, it seems, as you mentioned, well, particularly ridiculous that there's certainly like no depiction of sex on the page. Uh, I can kind of, if I am being extremely generous, I could see a parent reading this and going, this is a very young teen protagonist, uh, younger than that of Blankets. And as such, maybe if I'm thinking of the audience of the book as that same age, maybe you could argue there's some inappropriateness, but at the same time, this is much more mild than you would find, say, in a Judy Bloom novel, mm-hmm. which has been mm-hmm. out for decades. I, I would agree. It's entirely the comic book form that does this. I think in part that maybe it comes hand in hand with the accessibility, that it is hard, not just for kids, but for parents to read through an entire prose book to determine whether or not it's appropriate with a comic. You can open it up and flip a few pages and get pretty much whether anything leaps off or not. And, you know, you can read it outside of, you can read it outside of the context too. I mean, you can do pretty much the same thing that Wortham did, like, you know, and be like, here's this one really problematic panel. Well, quote unquote problematic panel, if that's your interpretation of it and like not viewing that in context too, can sort of do different things. And I mean, that accessibility, I think is a really good point because yeah, it's easy to sort of like be like, this is problematic because look at this one sex scene, which I could just flip through and find. Whereas yeah, you're absolutely right that like, yeah, a longer book, I think, I think sort of text narratives sort of fall under the radar a lot of the times because parents just aren't reading them. So (laughs) it's like comics, it's easier to just find that problematic scene. If we invert this, though, we've talked already about how comics, I mean, Anna, you said it beautifully, just the idea of the intimacy of comics and what that contributes. Um, What's the sort of trade-off, I guess, in in the sense of, like, like what what are these texts doing to portray sexual consciousness um, in a way that a textual narrative probably couldn't? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I did say the sex scenes in Blankets were, well, I want to say the sexual scenes in Blankets because the nature of the sexuality isn't necessarily clear. Um, It's definitely intimacy and it's definitely sexual, but with the exception of the masturbation scene in which we have, (laughs) we have the result of masturbation pictured. And I would like to talk about the significance of white imagery and its relationship to sexuality, perhaps in terms of the book's ending. The reason I liked those scenes particularly was, you know, 
it's very different from the very, I would say, like, it's fair to say negative view of sexuality in, like, the alternative comics tradition, you know, Robert Crumb especially, you know, like, depicting sexual fantasies, but depicting with a lot of shame and embarrassment and, you know, sexuality is this ugly, gross thing and depicting your view of it as ugly and gross is where the liberation comes in because it's this honest encounter with one's shame, right? Mm -hmm. And Blankets is going in such a different direction with it. I mean, shame is present as a theme of the text and yet he's depicting these sort of connections between the characters in which their bodies are joined by these wonderful intersecting lines of the quilt and, you know all this like sort of wonderful fluid imagery too that in some ways makes it sort of a very feminized joining which i think is really interesting and i mean sort of the the beauty and the spirituality that i think he infuses the sexual scenes with i found very um affecting and very sort of encouraging as again an alternative to kind of that robert crumb tradition of sexuality being such a negative and i think that that's a very powerful thing in this book in particular, like because it is that encounter with shame and it's sort of that overcoming the shame that you're indoctrinated into and finding escape from that shame in this very sort of, again, I don't want to essentialize it, but sort of feminized depiction of sort of a union that's very fluid and I don't know, I use a lot of different synonyms for fluid, but I'll stop. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Those are sort of some of the things that I liked about the depiction of, of, of sexuality in this book. I mean, that masturbation scene is great. He's like doing like almost like a beautiful interpretive dance as he's jerking <laughs> off. Yeah. And it's really, really wonderful. And it's really, really rare. I mean, I was trying to think of like another like alternative comics masturbation scene like that would like sort of be similar, like in terms of being that positive and beautiful. And like, it's yeah, it's it's rare. Well, I think I think the most interesting thing that, that kind of connects to Crumb here is the fact that Crumb actually created the confessional style in comics, right? He's widely credited with that. I don't know if that's 100% fair or not. I'm sure there's yeah. precursors. But I, I think he did establish a template of sex being depicted as shameful. And in Blankets, I, I feel like that's almost the antagonist of the story. Uh, Craig's being constantly held up by that. I think this one's summer in a way takes almost a more traditional approach in the sense that it's uh, very much the kind of sex as sex as this kind of secret divider between childhood and adulthood that uh, Rose is like, I know a little bit about sex and then uh, proceeds to talk about what happened in her grade two class. But <laughs> like, she doesn't know about this yet. She has, basically the word of the teenagers she eavesdrops on and the whispers from her parents that it's still a very mixed message that she's getting. Um, I think it, it works really well to recapture that sense. It arguably also dates the book in the sense that uh, this is before this seems to be before pornography was widely available online, but also they have X-Men movie on laptops, so I don't know. It is an interesting mix. Like, it's kept to the background, but on the other hand, the story is very much about the consequence of sex for women in particular. I read it as a threat, and this could, and again, I, I, I'm, I, I'm a male. I don't have this experience to draw on, but I feel like Wendy's constant emphasis on how Rose's breasts are going to develop it's mm -hmm. sort of meant to imply you're going to have to deal with this more and more and more. 
that, that, that she's trapped, I guess, uh, in this world that she's having kind of a negative experience with um, initially. I don't know if that's a fair interpretation, though. I think uh, well, this... I can. Uh, yeah. oh, I was like, do I shy away in on this from like the girl <laughs> perspective? I mean, I just like that's very typical of a lot of sort of you know prepubescent or pubescent conversations that you end up having with girlfriends, where you like, you know, even like those horrible things. Am I fat? Do I look fat in this? What does fat mean? And those are like negotiations of the identity that you're going to have to take on when you become this sexualized entity. And these are not super positive negotiations that we do with each other, trying to work through some of those expectations. And that really seemed very true to life to me anyway. Okay. What did you think, Michael, in that sort of regard, in terms of Wendy's role in this story? Think about the sort of relationship between Wendy and Rose in terms of their sexual maturity and their sort of differing perspectives on sexuality. Like, what's the what's the point of that character dynamic? It's it's an interesting contrast because it seems like Wendy is has been exposed to a little more. She's a little more uh, worldly than Rose in some ways, uh, but also is like there's a sense that. She doesn't have to quite deal with this yet, so she can take more of a laissez-faire approach. Uh, it also seems more like her nature to do that. Whereas Rose is kind of testing out her crush with her uh, crush on the local boy, Duncan, and her frequent attempts to try to seem cool to him through watching r-rated horror movies or just hanging around the store desperately hoping that he will notice her yeah it, it feels like wendy hasn't quite gone that far yet but she's still very interested in the body bodily transformations associated with adolescence and in that sense kind of draws rose back to those issues uh, as anna said it feels like a very common trope for a female-based young adult novel. The ending apply, implies that she's made peace with it to some extent without maybe fully going into what that might mean. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought, I thought it was very effective to have it represented visually as sort of, you know, the privileges and obligations that these two characters face in terms of their, their bodily presentation and stuff as well. I mean, Rose is sort of the blonde, skinny, potentially, you know, pretty popular type girl. I mean, she could be that character, right? I mean, it sort of makes you think back to like Ghost World and sort of the dynamic between those two characters a little bit, right? I mean, she could be the Rebecca character, you know? And so that gives her a type of privilege. It also gives her a type of responsibility in terms of like her, her budding sexuality and everything. Whereas Wendy, like with her sort of upbringing and her like presentation and her like commitments to various things might be excluded from some of those responsibilities but she might also get additionally persecuted um because mm -hmm. of her like um, you know less socially acceptable body and presentation and everything so i think that that dynamic as it was represented kind of visually even in the terms of the visual language that the characters sort of embody with their movement and everything mm -hmm. was done really effectively i think that that was something that you could do something similar in a text-based story but i think that that really came across much more dynamically um in in a graphic novel absolutely wendy's dance scene is very yes. very cute very her Pushing that back to blankets, Anna, what do you think about um, um, Craig's self-presentation? Because I thought it was interesting that so much is about his isolation. He's drawn in a very visually appealing way. Is that yeah. fair? Mm -hmm. Is that a choice? <laughs> yeah. like, 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 what no. is that? 
I was like very, I thought about that a lot. <laughs> I, mean, I do sex and comics and stuff. And I was like, man, it's so rare in an autobiographical graphic novel for especially a male cartoonist to kind of draw himself as attractive. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, he's totally, he's totally pretty in these scenes. And I thought that that was a very interesting choice and one that made me very excited. And I don't know what <laughs> I would say about that other than that. I mean, maybe it speaks to that sort of, you know, sex positivity that this that this text ultimately sort of communicates i think to me that, but that you know like because he's communicating that he doesn't have a negative view of himself and that he's like surprisingly rare in autobiographical graphic novels and i mean he's presenting himself to be consumed as well right i mean yeah. the female character talks about his beauty and he draws himself as beautiful with the long eyelashes and sort of the thin fluid body and the pretty hair and like all of these things so it's very interesting him presenting himself as a consumable object in that way in this context yeah and even and just a step further from that like the the line strokes in blankets are extremely dramatic and confident right which is mm -hmm. weird because you're using that to draw a character who's neither of those things mm -hmm. that's a really good so there, point there, there's, yeah. there's contrast there i guess sorry what were mm -hmm. you saying michael oh that his just that his form is also like very clearly in contrast with the other uh teenage yeah. boys around him that they're all big and hulk kind of hulking uh and so it, it kind of presents the idea that yes i have a pretty masculinity but it's not the kind that is accepted here and again i mean thinking about how comics do those sort of contrasts so well right i mean you could like i mean because you can imagine how it would be in a text-based narrative where the character would be describing mm -hmm. themselves and making indications of how but it's just like that comes across just so much like i don't want to say more powerfully but certainly more viscerally right in in this type of visual text okay so so one of the things that contrasts both stories that we're getting here is um a subsequent depiction of a marriage falling apart so we get this weird kind of like bookend phenomenon uh, of like sexual awakening and then the worst possible end for <laughs> a sexual awakening with, with these marriages just collapsing outright in front of these characters who are experiencing the sexual awakening it definitely works with the coming of age theme and i mean it's that's again sort of a common you know trope of coming of age things to have the contrast with the adult world and the child world and how the themes of the one world influence the themes of the other world and stuff so in that sense it's not like totally groundbreaking or anything i mean i would say that i felt that the interweaving was a bit more effective in this one summer than in blankets i mean one of my mm -hmm. complaints that i would have of blankets and you know i th there were things that i didn't enjoy that much about it but i think it does a little bit too much telling instead of showing compared mm -hmm. to this one summer even though it is very evocative and uses the visual language very effectively um because it's written in you know him kind of ascribing the meaning of the experiences and kind of being a bit over reliant on text in that way whereas this one summer often doesn't have that voiceover character thing and just sort of lets the dialogue and the captured sort of snippet exchanges between characters that are overheard through the perspective of Rose sort of do the do the telling for showing instead of telling in that sense rather than just like telling us what this scene means. Yeah, there's the scene in Blankets where um, Rena's father comes in and sees them together. And in spite of the mm -hmm. fact that he's going through hell in, in this divorce, and despite the fact that he's trying to keep his daughter maybe away from Craig, um, he looks at them together and he smiles and he leaves. 
um i feel like that was sort of like a flashpoint scene in that relationship he had like a conflicted reaction to that scene i felt like right i mean he has like initially the father so the father sees them like um, spooning together in bed like um, um usually craig sets the alarm so that he'll get up and go to the spare room but they it gets unplugged in there uh, passionate rolling around on the bed and <laughs> they sleep in um so the father finds them and initially his like responses to be like angry right and then he sort of gets touched by it sort of but then he goes into the living room and sits on the couch and seems like he's sort of sad yeah. about it as well that was interesting though too right because i mean ugh, this is like almost going to get us way off topic but i mean in terms of getting to questions of perspective right because that's like a scene that thompson chooses to depict in which he's not and, present and i think most of those I, I would have to go back to say this for sure but i think most of the scenes in this book that aren't from craig's perspective are from the father's if I can think of at least oh, two yes. other scenes from his point of view. That's interesting. Which seems like a weird choice, considering that he's kind of peripheral to Craig. That is a strange choice. But I mean, I guess that maybe makes the point of like him thinking that that character was particularly significant in terms of establishing sort of the connections between the teenage world and the adult world. Yeah. And in contrast, I think the mother gets a bit of a um, negative portrayal, like the fact that she is dictating her divorce messages to her daughter like that is yeah. brutal that scene <laughs> yeah i mean one of the things that i think you're gonna like or not like about this text i mean i am not a christian person i was if anything raised to be strongly atheist by my by my parents so i've never even been to church so i don't have any connection to this kind of world or upbringing um but I think he's wanting to negotiate a positive space for sex and love and romance within like a sort of an agnostic type of Christianity. And so I see some of those negotiations kind of playing out in his like hopes for, you know, this dad sees them together and actually sees the beauty of that and can appreciate that. And maybe his relationship had that at some point. So it's like, it's a tentative rejection of Christianity while still wanting to embrace it in certain respects. And maybe I see some of those negotiations negotiations happening there in the relationship between those characters. I saw it a bit as the father, uh, I, I'm glad someone did, like the father acknowledging, oh, we have put a ridiculous amount of pressure on our daughter. Let her have a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm pushing it back to, to this one summer, Michael. What's your take on mm -hmm. um, the failing relationship there? And in particular, I think like the the ways in which that marriage is presented in terms of them being on different pages. It seems mm. like the wife, uh, sorry, as in um, Rose's mom, is badly misunderstood by her partner. I, I mean, in this case, it's not entirely clear that it's going to fail, but it is definitely not in a good place. Yeah. I, I liked this depiction better in the sense that it felt much more closer to the main character, that it's filtered through Rose's interpretation pretty clearly. I love the way that the mother's body language is expressed through most of the book, that it's not so much that she doesn't want to be there, that she kind of doesn't want to be in a way, that she doesn't, she feels resentful of the demands put on her when she's still in mourning, resentful of the fact that yeah. she's not allowed to mourn by her husband. As you said, they are put in kind of separate corners. It says a lot that the father eventually departs and uh, Rose puts the blame entirely on the mother figure. Yeah. Uh, it says a lot. 
but it becomes part of her own personal development as well. There's a pretty direct connection, maybe almost too neat by the end of it, but uh, between the two kind of things that are uh, maturing her, her experience of her parents' marriage and her parents as people and the experience with the crisis that the townsfolk are going through in the background with this pregnancy and the two kind of meet together when she relies on her mother, when her first thing in a moment of crisis is call on your mother. And it solidifies the points, draws them all together, but um, yeah, maybe too neatly. I agree that it has the potential to be a little bit too neatly, like the way, you know, the mother is set up to have these issues and this issues in the relationship with her daughter. And then, you know, she becomes the <laughs> the hero mother figure who's like uh -huh. saving another child and that brings them closer together. But I thought it was really, really effective the way the sort of, I don't know, I, I don't even know whether this is relevant, but it's just like it's sort of like an anti-Freudian coming of age in the sense that she initially has the distance from her mother and has that hatred for her mother and everything, but then she comes closer to her mother as part of her maturation process and understanding sort of her, her mother's emotional issues better as she gets older, mm -hmm. rather than that just being a point of departure in which they just keep going further and further apart. Um, you know, again, as a girl who grew up in a home in which their parents went through a lot and like there were a lot of tensions in my household at that age too, that really resonated with me in terms of, you know, like sort of coming to understand and sort of some of your parents' mental health issues as you get older. And again, that can be a thing that breaks you apart or brings you back together. And I liked that play of tensions here. And I liked how to, because it is from Rose's perspective. So I did find myself heavily influenced by that for like three quarters of the book where it was like, I was angry at the mom. I was so angry at her. And I was just like, oh God, I'm angry at you. I'm angry at you for being an irresponsible parent and putting this in the eyes of your children and like for the damage that you're doing to them. And I'm very angry. And that's obviously coming from a space of personal experience too, right? These things always are. But then, like, the, when the, the way the mother gets humanized later in the text, like, that felt very, like, healing, sort of, in a personal way, I suppose, although this isn't really something that I'm, like, it's really a thing in my life these days. I'm a bit older than that now. But um, but still, like, the way that Rose is sort of coming to that better understanding of her mother and the way the perspective kind of changes in the, in the, in the text to communicate that I thought was really, really effective. Like, because you do have to have that, you do have to share that anger at her mother in order for that turn mm -hmm. to be effective. Right. Yeah. Okay, so maybe putting these two texts into a comparison on these lines, Anna, you've talked a lot about um, sex positivity in Blankets as a major theme. Is there anything sex positive uh, in the depiction of the sexual awakening that we see in this one summer? And if not, why not? What's the obstacle? I mean, there is some suggestion of queerness is the answer to some of these problems, but I don't think it's necessarily held up as the be all and end all answer, which I think would have been a mistake just in terms of, you know, because I mean, queer relationships are complicated too, and that's not going to fix everything. But at the same time, there's definitely, you can see in the negotiations between Wendy and Rose, Wendy perhaps testing Rose's acceptingness of mm -hmm own possible queer sexuality and whether she'll accept that or not and you know because there, there's the scene right where Wendy is in bed and Rose joins her Wendy is in the bed with the streak of light that should be Rose but then Rose actually does join her in the bed because Rose is feeling that streak of light and I mean the streak of light is a pretty like obvious like 
metaphor for hope or change. But I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be that, you know, the answer here is that like Rose is actually a lesbian and that's going to be her awakening. But I mean, the embrace of the connection between these characters in a more general sense and in 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 terms of a more general queerness that resists these heteronormative narratives that have clearly have been having a negative influence on Rose in terms of, you know, her anti-feminist use of the word Mm -hmm. slut, for instance. No, I just just wanted to follow up with Michael on that in terms of... Mm -hmm. um, do you see sex positivity in this one summer? Like, is, is there anything positive here? You can put the ending in that direction in the sense that Rose seems at least positive towards developing as an adolescent and what that might imply. I think that might be as far as that <laughs> goes, that she has come to peace with some of the more like extreme interpretations she was having. But... I mean, maybe a more appropriate kind of question, just, I mean, not that sexuality doesn't exist in childhood and everything, but I mean, whether to think about it more as like gender positivity, mm-hmm. you know, like, I mean, is this book sort of coming to a place of gender positivity and is that sort of a message that it's communicating? And I would definitely say that that's the case in terms of, you know, presenting all these different types of female characters and, you know, complex relationships and the not always positive negotiations that young girls go to go through in prepubescence. So in that sense, I'd say I would call it a very gender positive comic that I would have personally no hesitancy giving to a young girl, but. Mm -hmm. And it, it like never, like it, it does not present itself as we should be on Rose's side when she Mm -hmm. is calling the local girl sluts. It, presents it much more as like oh no duncan is terrible and i mean i definitely can see like being a younger girl reading it and like identifying with those feelings that you know you go through where you're just like oh like this yeah this guy at the video store like maybe he's really cool and maybe my solution to like being a person is for him to notice me and blah 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 and those are like feelings that a lot of young girls go through trying to negotiate your identity in this time in this space And, you know, to see her realizing the flaws in that thinking, I think is, again, like a perfect, like, YA type of experience. And I mean, think back to like old, old, old YA novels. I mean, something like Secret Garden. It's essentially the same story, right? I mean, the the young female protagonist goes from being super unlikable and frankly a bad person and like has sort of an experience of maturation, right? And that's effectively Mm -hmm. what we're seeing here, too, in a much more modernized and, you know, arguably much more nuanced and complicated way. Okay, so going in a different direction, um, one of the, the more like visually striking features of both of these texts is a bewildering amount of landscape sketches. Like between these two books, there's got to be 200 beautiful landscape sketches. So both of them are drawing on nature in different ways and um, maybe contrastingly different seasons as well mm-hmm. um, what what are you getting from the author's eye putting so much focus on nature in such a sort of realistic way in contrast to a cartoony style here in both of these texts and what are they trying to say through that kind of comparison that, that setting well i think in this one summer it the mood is a little towards what i was alluding to in my intro the sense of kind of the summer escape uh i think rose says at one point that she resisted coming to this beach in the winter because she always wanted to keep its the idea of it rooted in this one place that she can return to as familiar 
when I think about the landscape in particular, uh, what comes to mind is one of the wood scenes, uh, the scene where she describes, uh, oh, I can't remember exactly the plant. It's not dandelions, but that kind of like puff milkweed. of a plant. Milkweed. milkweed. Yes. Oh, the butterfly plant. Yeah. <laughs> and just the scenes are all around water that culminate in that really powerful rescue scene at the end. Yeah, it, it gives a sense of familiarity and escape, but also just a kind of beauty around you that lets you, and, and that's kind of what she, she is holding against her mother, that they're in this place where they're supposed to be free from the stuff that bothers them elsewhere, but she, her mother keeps bringing this baggage and she resents her for it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's dangerous sometimes to use nature in these ways in the terms of, I mean, one of the things that I thought was really effective too was the way it highlights kind of their privilege as these cottage goers too, when they mm -hmm. go into like the quote unquote bad area of town and you do have some signs that it's sort of interrupting this being this pastoral idyllic space. It does that through the mother's inability to relax and let go of her baggage, but also through some of those glimpses of the less pretty parts of the community, right? Yeah, I thought the depictions of class in the novel were a little muted, but very good for what was there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what about blankets with its use of blizzards, which seems like an odd choice for, you know, um, pathetic fallacy of a, of a love story? <laughs> I mean, I brought up the connection to sex before and yeah. come and whiteness. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I definitely read the ending as, you know, being very evocative of that. So it ends with the with the turn towards whiteness, which is sort of in a literal sense, painting over with a white paint roller, the painting of Raina and Craig that Craig paints on Raina's wall. But there's also this line about making a mark, however yeah. temporary, which is ironic in the sense that he's making this mark permanent by writing a comic book about it. So it's a meta commentary on the nature of sort of cartooning and autobiographical cartooning in, in particular. But also it reminded me of that masturbation scene and his depiction of come there. Mm. And it's just like, well, you're making a mark, however temporary. And it's sort of... <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, mm -hmm. it's intentional, I'm going to assume, <laughs> even though one of my mild critiques of this comic is that I would almost have liked it to be a little bit more explicit in terms of its sort of embrace of sexual metaphor there, because that was definitely something I read into some of that imagery. But I think that he very sort of buried that subliminally. And I was even curious about to what extent he was meaning to emphasize that or not, because... I definitely saw it being present, but I was just like, is that just my dirty mind? Or I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I, cause I mean, there, there's sort of a thing where, you know, cause I mean, part of like the redeeming sexuality is beautiful. And in particular, redeeming male sexuality is beautiful because I think that that's actually something we keep coming back to with blankets. I mean, his depiction of himself is beautiful. His depiction of masturbation is beautiful. Um, and like feminizing it in certain ways too, is part of that beauty. But I mean, to like, <laughs> re like to take come from being a shameful sign of weakness and 
shame and whatever and turn it into then associated with these beautiful landscapes and purity right to directly associate it with purity through that white imagery i'm sorry i took us in such a sexual place with that no, but like <laughs> i think that that is present though i really i think that that's not just something i'm making up well for me i think one of the things that blankets does really really well is the way that it portrays craig's perception of the relationship when he's in the moment as not mm -hmm. beautiful but juvenile uh, yeah. this, this idea that his love for Reina is transcendent and will bring him above the demons. And then two pages later, they break up over the phone and he, yeah. he, he thinks about this wasn't that big a deal. Like, I think mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of the message. That's where you get the hormone element, right? The idea mm -hmm. of how the mind, even the artist's mind, can be aligned with the will of the hormones to see it mm -hmm. in specific. And for me, if Blankets didn't have its fourth act, and didn't have that reflection on how this was kind of not that big a deal, actually, in, in the bigger scheme of things, um, I, I think it would read as a typical romance. So I really like that it shows you how in the moment Craig was in the moment. And then in hindsight, he's reflecting on, oh, I was just doped up on hormones beyond all recognition at that point. So it's just kind of yeah. how intoxicated he was during it. The problem with me in Blankets is that by the time I get to the fourth act, I very much want the book to not <laughs> be going on anymore uh, because it is very long. And I, I don't, I, I think I don't give it enough attention as a result, but I'm not sure he is dismissing it so easily. Like it clearly had this huge meaningful impact on him and it might be like, this was not the love of my life, but it was like, this is still the source of my awakening in a lot of ways. That was very similar to what I was going to say, actually, that I was going to push back a little bit on, you know, in terms of this being, mm, I, keep, ah, I keep coming back to like a slippery word like queer, but like, I mean, in terms of it being something that's resisting certain presumptions of how maturity should function, him elevating this teenage romance as something that was very important and valuable, despite the fact that it was very teenagery and he did glorify this woman in all of these ways and everything. And yet, despite all of that, it still holds an importance to him. It sort of gets us back to that contradiction of like, temporary versus permanent right? right he is making this thing permanent by doing a graphic novel about it and i mean we can talk about sort of the politics of representation in terms of you know is it okay for him to represent this woman in this way is he being critical enough of his own you know overwriting of his consciousness onto her and stuff and those are certainly conversations you could have about blankets i think it's not horrible in that respect i mean he is conscious of you know himself creating her in a lot of ways and is self-critical in mm -hmm. terms of his lack of understanding for her so i don't i don't want to just be like this is a pixie dream girl thing and let's just write it off because i think it's more complicated than that but um but yeah i don't know i don't know that he that he comes to this point where he thinks that that relationship is in the past if anything he's saying how much it's still with him and he keeps the quilt and he makes a comic about it right yeah but he doesn't touch it yeah he, he yeah. says it's in the crawl space which is where you put the scary stuff so i don't know yeah. from, from my interpretation he does kind of reflect on this relationship still important still meaningful but what it meant to him in the moment is not what it means to him in hindsight in hindsight, yeah. it was an important life thing, but it wasn't the love of his life transcending his personal hell. You know what I mean? Like, like, like those images yeah. to me look like something someone who's in love draws in the back of their binder. Uh, and I like it, but I, I feel like there's a layer of irony to it that we're meant to be conscious of. It's interesting in comparison with this one summer that I think 
this one, Summer, is a little more accurate in its depiction of teenage life from an outsider, but you could make the case that Blankets is more accurate at a portrayal of what it feels like to be a teenage boy from the inside in that sense. Okay, so interiority, right? Yeah. As a pivot point? Yes. I mean, there's such interesting <laughs> contrasts. I mean, there there's so many interesting sort of male-female contrasts and perspective yeah. things in both texts. I mean, even I was struck by how both comics open with references to mainstream comics. Rose is reading mm -hmm. manga, and the boys, um, Craig and Phil, are wearing Batman and Spider-Man um, bed shirts. And I mean, even that as a starting point for how their perspectives are like a little bit different and like how they're being socialized differently and everything. I mean, some of the kind of like negativity and insecurity of the Rose and Windy space versus, you know, it, it's a hard comparison because we're talking about different periods in these characters' lives. It wouldn't be a proper comparison unless it was like this one summer was also more of a teenage story. Mm -hmm. But certainly that contrast between, you know, I don't know. Just some of those gendered contrasts are really interesting in these two texts in terms of how that perspective works. And mm -hmm. I think, I, again, I would say one of the points in Blanket's favor is that he's aware of his limited perspective regarding Raina's experience. And she sort of, I liked this a lot, the scene um, where they're at the party and he's realizing both mm -hmm. the scene at the party and the scene at the school where he's realizing that Raina actually has all these other friends and is actually popular. And he feels very like betrayed by that. And yeah. I was like, that was a really good moment of self-reflection for him to be like, I want her to be this certain thing and to be just for me and shaped by me. And right. I feel intimidated, but that, that, this is, that this is not the case. And I think that that's where it's sort of coming out of that pixie dream girl thing a little bit in, in a way that I found really productive hmm. well maybe bringing that to to this one summer like, like i said blankets has a fourth act which i'm i'm we're all english majors here that is really rare like incredibly rare might not be a good thing depends on your perspective could you explain for the benefit of our readers or <laughs> listeners rather <laughs> what you mean by by the the fourth act and what part of the text that is okay so the fundamental element of structuralism is that texts are divided into three acts set up conflict and resolution um, now, one dude in the 1700s claimed that Shakespeare uses five acts. Uh, most contemporary scholars say that's BS. Shakespeare completely uses setup, conflict, resolution. He only uses three acts. Others have pointed out that there's a couple anomalous texts that do use a fourth act. I think maybe the poster child of this would be Lord of the Rings, if you read it as one book, which has a fourth act in the, um, what, what do they call it? Something of the Shire. Scouring? Sounds Scouring. right. Yeah. Um, so it's a very rare thing. There are theories that your brain will subconsciously reject a text if it doesn't obey the three-act structure. So again, very rare, very argumentative. Blankets has its three acts and then puts on a fourth act, which I would argue is largely a subversion of the first three. But again, that might just be me. Um, so again, it's, it's structurally unique in that sense. And I really get a kick out of that. And that makes it fun to teach in a first-year English course. But the other, like, comparative structurally unique thing that I wanted to point out about this one summer and you get Michael's take on it was the fact that you have a story about young love in which the protagonist is not an active participant in that relationship. So it's not Romeo and Juliet, right? Uh, it's something different. There's a, there's a layer of distance and detachment there. Um, and that's reflective of the youth of the character, but it could also reflect certain kind of structural elements at play maybe 
how do you react to Rose not being in a relationship in a story about relationships? Yeah, it, it does show a reorienting in the sense that it it almost makes it feel a little more true to life in the sense that people tend to think of themselves as the center as, of the, our own stories. But in reality, there are always these stories that we are just tangentially touching on. And it's these stories, as much as anything else, that sometimes form who we are. And I, I like it in that sense, the sense that you can grow as a person based on things that you may not have had a direct part in, but still mattered to you, still existed for you, which is kind of how we ourselves respond to narratives as things that we don't. And, and yeah, that, that kind of distance kind of puts us in her corner, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It reflects yeah, nicely I mean, the, the, the parenting relationship as well, right? The idea that Rose is an observer of mm -hmm. the two relationships that deeply affect her and maybe form paradigms. Yeah, you could, I think you could make the argument that if we were to take either of those other stories as the lead uh, in their structure, they're kind of cliched. Uh, that like on the one hand, you have the teenage love affair and the dramatic attempt maybe attempted suicide. On the other, you have the tragic woman getting over the loss of her child. And neither of those are bad stories, but they are a little more known stories in a sense. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to talk about this fourth act thing because okay. I... <laughs> Sorry. Are you saying that... Do, do, do you think that that is a point in Blanket's favor? Because I hated it so much. <laughs> yeah, that me is, too. <laughs> that's funny. That's the only reason I like and I, I, hate, I, hate, I, hate, I hate that part of Lord of the Rings too. I'm just like, why so much it. resolution? It so much. It's so stupid. Well, yeah, the movie taking digression, but the movie taking the halfway point between <laughs> let's do the full scour and let's yeah. not do it, bad. Yeah. Bad. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I. It feels kind of like the fourth act is more of a nod to Thompson kind of self consciously going, oh, but by the way, my life didn't end there. I, I, I'm still alive, still here. It might be necessary for him, but I don't know if it's necessary for the story he was telling. Okay. For me, that is the story he was telling. You know what I mean? Like, like, like that's yeah. the point. That the story was just this exaggeration in his head. It was the product of again being young and in love. That that that's where to me the story really emerges. It, it, without that fourth act, to me, blanket is a beautifully drawn cliche. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would I would push back on that just for some of the things that I already said. Where I I think that there are interruptions of the beautiful reality, like within it. Yeah. Like before we get to the fourth act, I, the thing I didn't like about it, and I, I see what you're coming from with it. Um, but what I didn't like about it is that it was like erasing some of that subjective, that subjectiveness. It was like him intruding in this fourth act to be like, here's the moral of the story. Let me relate it to you here and like make it really clear. And just some of the two, it was too neat. You know, he comes home and he's just like, look, I've made amends with my parents. This is the really happy place I'm in with my life now, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, <laughs> it's like, what, who was that ending for? I get right. that it was for him. I think it was for him 
and not for us and was perhaps in the disservice of telling a more complicated story that was less afraid of people's subjective reactions to that story. So okay. that would be my complaint about it. And I don't I like I'm I'm simplifying it. There's a lot of complexity in that ending and I think that the ending ending with him like walking in the snow with the footprints and that sort of conversation about permanence and impermanence and leaving a mark and not and kind of some of the messaging about the circularity of that right which is tied in with the circularity of the seasons and you know snow as a metaphor for this permanence and impermanence it always comes back you leave a mark you leave another <laughs> mark in the same place there's a lot of interesting themes going on there but i didn't like him like intruding as his omniscient adult self and telling us what the story we just read was about i didn't like that aspect of it and yeah, that's fair. What saves the the first three acts from cliche for me is not Craig, but is Reina, the messiness of her own life. Like mm -hmm. she is much more like in a way, Craig serves a role similar to Rose in the sense that he is an observer of her life. Yeah, and, that's true. And I think like she is the core of that story to me. And when she is gone from the story, well, I mean, she isn't the core of the story because there's a whole part of it before she even comes into the picture, but she becomes more of a center than Craig for me. And once she's out of it, uh, my interest in the story decreases pretty proportionally. That's how I feel about Tom King's Batman when Catwoman leaves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so inverting everything I thought I would ask what was supposed to be my first question <laughs> last. Um, how do you respond to the depiction of young love in these two texts? Like, like we've talked about resonance. We've talked about personal experience a little bit, and we've talked about sort of um, positivity versus a lack of positivity. Um, what do you think is sort of like the thesis on love in, in, in these two books? Well, first, I really related to this one summer in the sense of the idea of you have crushes on people. They never find out about it. They go through their own emotional arc. <laughs> you move on. Uh, so I, I feel like it's a very accurate form of teenage love that actually doesn't get much attention. The, the crush that the unrequited, almost unspoken crush. And I, I like it in that sense. Um, I guess you could say the thesis on love here is that boy, those teens are going to figure it out someday, but it sure ain't today. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, I feel like for me with blankets, I mean, it just, I just keep coming back to like, it depends on your interpretation of that middle section, right? Like, I mean, is it this positive thing that is like this ongoing positive sort of like moment in his life that is influencing his actions on the present? Or is it, as you said, sort of like, boxed in by his adult remembrance of it as like a somewhat silly like and melodramatic dalliance and i think it can be both or it could be either but yeah i mean i'm not sure i don't know if i have a straightforward answer to that question i would say though that i was going to bring up earlier but that i will bring it up now that I, it did it didn't really occur to me how interesting it was the way we broke up these texts you know like i took blankets like the male coming of age story and michael took like the female coming of age story and yeah i definitely identified with both of these stories in different ways but it was just interesting how that broke down and i think it's contributed to our interesting conversation at least i hope so Uh, 
Uh, so as is our habit at the end of our episodes, we thought we would do some recommendations. Um, maybe let's start with Michael on this one. What do you have for us? Well, I have two books I'm pretty sure I've recommended before. Uh, Super Mut- Mutant Magic Academy by Jillian Tamaki, which is a wonderful book. And uh, Mariko Tamaki's Harley Quinn Shattered Glass, which is a teen look at Harley Quinn. And I'm also in kind of the... Yes. Breaking Glass. Breaking Glass? What did I say? Uh, Shattering Glass. Okay. Uh, Sure. Breaking Glass. The important thing is that the glass is broken. And I'd also like to recommend the, in kind of the teen spirit, uh, the video game Life is Strange. That's awesome. Anna, what would you like to recommend for us? Uh, I think my recommendation is sort of relevant. Um, I did sort of like a surprising amount of writing about the television show Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman this year. I've got a couple of things coming out in a book that Andrew and I are both involved in, Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero, which is coming out this episode will be December 1st. It's coming out in two weeks and it's an awesome book and you should check it out if you enjoy our podcast. Um, But um, in terms of sort of coming of age, I had a really interesting experience of revisiting that show when I turned 30 um, and I hadn't watched it in like at least 15 years. And it was such an important show to me when I was like 12, 13 years old. And it really did a lot to like, I was surprised rewatching it how much it shaped kind of my view of relationships and sort of like what like being an adult professional should look like and everything. And then I was also very kind of amused and disturbed to realize like, oh, crap, I'm like a 30 year old woman who's getting paid to write about Superman. I did kind of become Lois Lane. (laughs) I didn't mean to at all. And anyway, in terms of weird kind of coming of age personal reflections, Lois and Clark is a really interesting show to revisit. Um, I would definitely recommend the pilot in particular as very, if you're listening to this as like a comics academic or a teacher, it's a very very, 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 very teachable text as an adaptation of Superman and sort of re-enter, reorienting the Superman story sort of around a female gaze in not unproblematic ways, but um, certainly an interesting text to talk about in terms of reframing stories and has that connection to me in terms of coming of age. But anyway, that's my terrible, terrible recommendation, something that I loved 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, okay, and for me, I'm going to recommend Sarah Anderson's Fangs which is a very recent text um, based on the webcomic or collected from the webcomic. Um, this is the author of Sarah's Scribbles, who you probably know from everyone's aunt's Facebook. Um, but in fact, it's sort of a like, like mature, uh, very sex positive, really kind of sexy, frankly, um, hipster relationship between a vampire and a werewolf and like slice of lifey kind of stuff. Um, it, it just has a wicked sense of humor uh, about it. And I think it really captures certain relationship aspects in cool symbolic vehicles uh okay so um thank yous just to us because we're all in a pandemic and mm-hmm. talking to each other online uh <laughs> and i think that's it and then our next episode um we're gonna um i mean coming out of lois and clark a little bit here i guess um we're going to be looking at jack kirby's jimmy olsen series in contrast with matt fractions jimmy olsen series so it should be a really interesting kind of sidekick comparison and we hope to see you then